as we continue in our series today, then our hopes is that we can continue to answer this question of what is church membership? What does it look like to be a responsible member of the kingdom? As we do so, we will be reading from Matthew chapter 18. And so as we begin our time, let us begin there in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 22. Matthew 18, 12 through 22. Picking it up in the middle of this conversation, Jesus says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that you may ask it, and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. This is the word of God. Well, obviously the concept that we're covering today, this idea of accountability and, and church discipline, is not at the, the front of many people's minds in the midst of our current cultural crisis, is it? And for in the midst of this pandemic, we are left as a society, as a nation, asking, how should we respond to this? And yet, while that response and that discussion is different from what we are covering today, it is very much related. For in many ways, we are all asking the same question, and that is, what does it look like to be a citizen in this nation right now? What should we expect from your common individual? What should we expect from our political leaders? What does a proper citizen do in response to a significant crisis? And while we all might come to different conclusions regarding the sacrifices that we can expect, we all, I think, as a society, have, have come forward and, and understood that, that ultimately, no one is an island. That is to say, we understand that our actions, the choices we make, clearly have an impact on those around us and, and even throughout the world. And so regardless of what we might choose to do in our own personal lives, in our own personal homes, we now, I think, must begin thinking in terms of, well, how will this decision affect my neighbor truly? This is a good question to ask. And as a society, we are, are rightly having that conversation and we are also rightly frustrated by those individuals that seem to, to fail to think of those things. And so, for instance, you might have seen the headlines of the Tennessee man just a couple of weeks ago who purchased 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. Uh, this individual bought th these bottles of hand sanitizer, of course, thinking he could make a quick buck by selling them on Amazon and taking advantage of this pandemic and the national crisis. 
And while he no doubt thought he was making a good decision, society very quickly responded and held him accountable. For as a whole, people throughout the country called him out and spoke of the greed, spoke of how you cannot act that way in the midst of a crisis. In a similar way, Amazon, the business through which he was planning on selling his products, stepped in and said, no, no, you can't do that. You cannot sell your product through our website. And even ultimately, those of higher authority threatened to step in and and present him with legal action and accuse him of price gouging. As a society, we, many of us at least, I think, applauded the accountability that came in. For we understood that, that that response to a pandemic probably does not reflect proper citizenship as we come to understand it. It, it failed to reflect a proper level of concern. And so we understand and, and we are thankful for those individuals that can step in and, and call individuals out like that. We're thankful for laws that, that draw the line for us and tell us this is what is appropriate, this is what is not appropriate. And when push comes to shove, we understand that there are people who will hold one another, who will hold us accountable to following those rules of order. We understand this is a necessary process in any society. And so it should not surprise us then that when Christ speaks of his kingdom, when he speaks of his local church, that concern of ours today, he too has this expectation of accountability. He sets very clearly marked parameters of, of what responsible citizenship in this kingdom looks like. Again, we've seen some of those responsibilities already in terms of service and in terms of of selfless sacrifices. And today we come to another tool, another practice that is essential to the health of every single local church. It is the practice of accountability. It is that of church discipline. And we live in a culture in which this, of course, is viewed in a somewhat negative way. Holding people accountable appears to be a a bit self-righteous in the minds of many. And yet as we examine this text before us today, what I hope we can see is that it is far from from shameful, it is far from harsh. This activity is ultimately loving. It is ultimately to the benefit of, of God's people and our preservation and our building up and it is ultimately essential for the unhindered proclamation of God's word throughout our culture in which we live. And so in considering why this is the case today, we will break our text into three basic questions. Those questions being, why must we practice this accountability? What then does this accountability look like? And finally, what does it ultimately produce? All three questions are very important, but as we'll see here in a moment, I I really think it's our first question that is of the utmost concern. Before we begin addressing that question, though, let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time this morning. Obviously, the setting in which we find ourselves is far from ideal. Uh, Obviously, God, we find ourselves in the midst of a cultural crisis crisis that is uh, genuinely um, intimidating and scary to many of us, God. For we live in, in times that appear to be incredibly uncertain. We do not know what will happen later today or later on this coming week. And so many of us come this morning, God, distracted, frustrated, anxious. And yet, God, as we gather together this morning, we've already been given an incredible reminder of the fact that even in the midst of these uncertain times, God, that you are still good, that you are still sovereign, that the future promises that you have made regarding the return of your son are still certain, that we still hope in that same process and that same ultimate reality, God. 
And even as we consider the text in Matthew 18 today, we are reminded of the fact that even in these uncertain times, there are things that we as a corporate body of Christ know that we must do. And so God, I pray for comfort for all of us this morning, God. For those individuals who have already been hurt severely by this crisis, God, I pray for for their comfort. We continue to pray for our nation, God, and pray that you might sovereignly choose to bring a quick and miraculous end to the coronavirus here nationally. And we pray the same thing worldwide. We pray for the countless individuals who are serving in the medical community and elsewhere to try to bring that healing, to try to bring a proper response. And we pray, God, that you prevent further lives being lost. We pray, God, that we as a church might respond appropriately throughout it all, God. And we pray that in everything we do, we might not lose sight of what it means to be a church, what it means to be citizens of your heavenly kingdom. We love you, God, and pray that your blessing might be upon us this morning. Give us an ability to focus on the text before us, even though we might find ourselves in distracting circumstances, God. And might it all be done to your glory and to the praise of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are looking at three questions this morning in Matthew 18. The first question, perhaps the most important question, is the question of why. Why must we as a church practice accountability and attached to that, why must we practice church discipline? This is a very important question to ask, but ultimately what we see in Matthew 18 is that the reason why it is essential is because of the incredibly unique relationship that you and I share with one another within the local church. For we understand that as we look at the words of Jesus Christ in verses 12 through 22, we find words of instruction that specifically are for that unique relationship. Now in understanding this relationship, it's important to understand both the context in which Jesus is speaking as well as the character of the relationship that is being presumed here. For we understand in asking the question of context that Jesus is not giving rules of conflict engagement that that can necessarily be followed just out on the street. That is to say, the words Jesus gives us today are, are given in a very specific context, a very unique relationship. Broadly speaking, that context is specifically between two Christians, We see this very clearly throughout the text, but if you would just pick up the verse with me again in in verse 15, and you can see what I'm saying. As Jesus begins to offer his words of instruction in Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The key word I want you to see here is is that word brother. Uh, Again, as as I mentioned earlier, in Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking on the concept of the kingdom of God, meaning this applies to citizens in the kingdom of God. This applies to Christians. This is why he's able to use terms like brother, and we could attach to that as well sister. These words are given to put into practice in the relationship between Christians. But even More specific than that, we understand that Jesus goes even further and does not simply speak to the relationship between two random Christians, but he speaks of a relationship between Christians within the same local church setting. That point is a little harder to see initially, but but I think it is there in verses 16 through 17. Again, follow along with me as we read. But if he does not listen to you, that is, the sinning brother... Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The key word in this this latter sentence then is, of course, that word church. Jesus, in telling us how we are to resolve conflict amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, speaks of the role of a local church setting. Now, the word church, of course, can be used in in two ways in Scripture. You see in some circumstances that church applies to the universal body of believers everywhere and in every setting. But more specifically, it can also refer to specific local church settings. And I think based off what Jesus is saying here, the the context is pretty clear, isn't it? For it would be impossible for us to, to take the sin of a brother or sister in front of literally every single Christian throughout the world. That is not a reasonable command, a reasonable request. Now, it makes far more sense to understand that Jesus tells us to take sins before our local church setting, our local gathering. The same level of understanding seems to very much be on display in Paul's mind when he also addresses the idea of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. There in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul again is is instructing the church in Corinth and how they are to respond to sin within the Corinthian church. And in speaking to that concern, he he again instructs them on on the necessity of bringing that sinner before everyone, the necessity of ultimately sending that individual out of their congregation. The context in which Jesus speaks then is that context of a local church gathering. Now, In response to that context, many people might respond with with feeling a bit uneasy. For it might feel awkward to say, okay, well, if if someone's struggling with sin, let's drag them up in front of a group of complete strangers that just happen to sit in the same pew of them each week. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? And as a result, this idea of of addressing sin publicly just, just feels seedy. It feels questionable. And yet, That feeling, of course, goes against the type of relationship that Jesus is describing here. For Jesus is not describing a a, a pursuit of a believer that is a stranger to you. He's speaking within the context of an incredibly close relationship. In that, we see the character of the relationship come out as well. You see that character in part already in those verses that we just read, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus describes our fellow believers as brothers or as sisters in Christ. That that assumes a certain level of love and concern. But perhaps even more incredibly, we see it come out in the other type of relationship that Jesus uses as, as an example for us to follow. That other relationship is detailed in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. Here in these verses, just before Jesus speaks on the topic of accountability, Jesus offers these words, beginning in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perishes. It's interesting that in setting up a discussion on church discipline or accountability, Jesus uses this imagery of the relationship between a shepherd and his sheep. This is interesting to to see because we understand that throughout all of Scripture, that relationship is is oftentimes highlighted as, as a precious picture that helps us understand the relationship that God has with his people. 
For like a shepherd and a sheep, God provides for us as people. Like a shepherd to a sheep, God protects his people. God keeps us sustained. God delivers us. Jesus himself describes himself as the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. This is a, a beautiful image. For we understand throughout all scripture that the love and care and concern that a shepherd has for a sheep is, is deep. It is profound. It is gracious and full of compassion. It then makes sense to see the same relationship not only used to describe Jesus with his people, but even to describe pastors and elders with the people that God has placed under their care. For as we see in other New Testament texts, it's that same imagery that is used when instructing pastors and, and reminding them of, of how important it is for them to care and concern, be concerned over and, and protect their flock. What is surprising in our text today, however, is that Jesus is not simply describing a relationship between, between God and his people, nor is he describing something that simply happens between a pastor and his flock, although that is part of it. No, Jesus in using this illustration, is giving an example for every single average church member to follow. For having described that, that action of a shepherd in response to a lost sheep, Jesus in verse 15 immediately says, so if your brother sins, if you, average member of any given church, if you see your brother sin against you, go after him. Seek after him. Bring him back. It is your responsibility. It's a surprising call for it speaks of a level and of a devotion that perhaps is not all that common amongst many church communities. For the relationship that is really presumed by Jesus Christ here is a relationship in which church members really do care for one another deeply. This is a relationship where, where church members, well before any accountability comes in, well before church discipline comes in, these church members are already actively engaged in, in each other's lives. They, they are working to understand their fellow sheep, their fellow church members. They're looking to provide for their needs. They're looking to protect their fellow members. They're looking to lift them up and encourage them and, and help them remain on that path of righteousness. And this type of relationship, a sin that any given member commits, does not strike us as a surprise, but, but we understand it as inevitable. For we understand that, that all of us Ultimately, sin, all of us fall short, all of us stray from time to time. In response to that sin, then, the member does not respond with shock and horror. No, it responds in the same way a shepherd responds to a sheep. That it responds with love. And it responds with that knee-jerk reaction that says, okay, well, I have to do something about this. I have to do whatever it takes to bring my straying brother or sister in Christ back to our local flock. Back to our community. There is a love here then, a, a level of devotion and compassion that, that explains the context in which church accountability really can happen. For when we love each other to this degree, when we're devoted to one another to this level, it makes sense that we'll call each other out on sin. It makes sense that we will respond aggressively to one another when we are struggling. For it falls in line with the, with the continual care and concern we are regularly showing for one another. This is why, by the way, we take church membership so seriously here. This is why you cannot simply show up to Cape Bible Chapel on a Sunday morning and say, okay, well, I'm a member now. I like the service. Count me in. We appreciate your enthusiasm. 
And I hope that's how you respond. But it's not that easy, is it? For those of you who become members, know that there's a class that you sit through. Why do we have a class? Well, it's so we can teach you. Here's what we believe. Here's what we are all about as a church. Here's what it means to be a church member. Here's what we expect of you as a member. Even after going through that class, we ask individuals to to then fill out a a forum and meet with one of us as a pastor or elder so that we can listen to you, explain your love for Jesus, talk about what your devotion to Christ looks like, ask you questions about why you want to become a member. We do so not to make it unnecessarily hard. We do so to make sure that, that you really do want to be one of us. And even after you go through that whole process, we then drag you up on stage in front of everyone when you then have to uh, uh, commit yourself openly and publicly to living out the proper life of a member. And we do this so that by the time you get to this point in, uh, on the stage, you understand exactly what is taking place. For when new members stand on this stage, they are not simply saying, okay, I agree to, to show up now on a Sunday. No, they're saying, I'm one of you now. I will use whatever gifts God has given me to serve you. I'll use whatever God calls me to do to to ultimately serve within this local congregation. And it also means that if I see you, brother or sister in Christ, struggling, I will do whatever I possibly can to lovingly bring you back. And in the same way, it is the declaration of saying, if you see me straying, drag me back by whatever means you can. That's what it means to be a church member. That's the expectation. That's the devotion. That's the love. That's the level of concern. The question, of course, is whether or not this is true of of you as a member. Is this true of us as a community? Do we understand that this is the responsibility that God gives to, to all members of his kingdom, to all members of the local church? That's the community that God assumes, that Christ commands And it is only when that community is present that the words that Christ then offers regarding accountability and church discipline really can be seen in their their properly beautiful and loving context. Assuming that that community is there and praying that we're able to work towards that community more and more then, let us now move forward into that second question where once we understand that accountability is essential because of our unique relationship, we can now ask, okay, well then, How must we practice it? What does this process look like according to Jesus Christ? And what we see, thankfully, is again, Jesus is is incredibly clear in giving us the answer. For he offers us this step-by-step process of careful and purposeful confrontation. We see this process broken down initially into three different steps. Verses 15 through the first half of verse 17. Follow along with me if you will, and see these first three steps. There we read, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And we'll stop there for a moment. So recognizing and and assuming that level of love and compassion is there, Jesus then explains what we must do when we see a fellow member, a brother or sister in Christ, sin. Some of your texts might include the word sin against you. Not all versions explain that, but ultimately that's what Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking of a sin that, that is ultimately against the body. In response to that sin, Jesus gives these words that speak to a very careful 
very patient process of confrontation. A process that begins in the smallest circle possible and then gradually works its way out. And what I hope you see in these verses is is there's nothing shameful or humiliating ultimately about them. Rather, there's a a constant constant focus of of considering the brother in sin, constant desire to, to make sure we are doing what is best for that individual. And we see this from the very beginning with this first step. The first step is found in verse 15, and it's the step of of private confrontation. Again, read the words of Jesus Christ in verse 15. If your brother sins, go him, go to him and go to sorry, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, we live in a culture in which we might expect Jesus to say, if your brother sins, go and passively, aggress- uh, passively aggressively address it through social media. That seems to be the typical process of confrontation people follow. Or we might even assume, if your brother sins, we'll just ignore it. It's no big deal. And generally speaking, that's the, that's the approach that, that most people take to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They either address it in an unbiblical way, or they just think, well, I'll ignore it. No big deal. But again, if we're operating already with that understanding that we are shepherds in this process, then we cannot excuse any sin at all. We must seriously think through it. Now, as we consider this step of addressing a sin with a brother or sister in Christ, we have to understand again from the beginning that not every sin requires the same, the same passion and confrontation. It doesn't require the same level of, of seriousness or gravity that we take with us. For you can read other passages such as 1 Peter 4, 8, in which Peter, speaking on the, the act of living with one another lovingly, says this in, in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 Peter. He says, be of, so, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Oh, wait a minute. Nope, that's the wrong verse. In 1 Peter, we are, are told that love covers a multitude of sins. That is a, a proper biblical understanding there. Yeah, verse, verse 8 of chapter 4. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Oops, sorry. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Sorry, back on track. Love covers a multitude of sins. We understand that biblically, not every sin requires us to, to continually pursue our brothers. There are certain times when our brothers or sisters in Christ may sin and it might hurt us. And, and so we do confront it, but, but love at times can cover. We understand, for instance, that that in moments of, of increased anxiety, increased stress, say, for instance, there's a global pandemic that forces us all to stay at home, hypothetically speaking. We understand that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ might really struggle in that moment. And suddenly they might snap back at you in a way that, that isn't typical of them. While we might address it privately, we, we do not hold, them against, uh, hold it against them to the uh, extent of, of dragging them through church discipline. And we understand that we are dealing with sinful sheep. We understand that everyone will offend us. But when the sin rises to the level of of a habitual practice, when we see that sin harming others or ultimately even harming the reputation of our church body and of the gospel itself, then we're instructed to confront privately. To make sure that our brother or sister in Christ understands the offense that they have caused. The hope, of course, here is is that the brother or sister repents. They, they turn away, and if they do, Jesus says, congratulations, you've won your brother. You've, you are able to celebrate in the same way that a shepherd rejoices when he finds that lost sheep. 
At times, however, we understand that this does not happen, that it does not go that smoothly. And so if the brother refuses to listen, we're given step two, step two being small group confrontation. That step is given in verse 16 where Jesus says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So here, if, after you've confronted your brother or sister, if you, you believe the sin still rises to that level that requires confrontation, that requires an ongoing pursuit, Jesus says, okay, we'll, we'll try again. This time, take with you one or two more believers. The assumption being, of course, these believers will also know the individual. These believers will come from that same local church gathering context. And so these believers will be joining you out of a, a true desire to care, to show compassion, to to help out a dear, loved brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And speaking to this second step, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, and he says the reason why we do this, why we bring more, is so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now again, in our culture, it might feel as if these additional witnesses are for the purpose of humiliating the sinner, or for the purpose of, of bringing a sort of heavy-handed response, but that's not what Jesus is saying. You see, in the text that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Jesus is referencing a law by which God tries to help his people ensure that truth always wins out in a court of law. There in Deuteronomy chapter 19, God instructs his people in this way. In verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The concern there is the same concern we would have in any court of law today. We want to make sure that an individual is not not wrongly, wrongfully prosecuted, wrongfully accused of a crime he or she did not commit. The same concern is brought into any level of church accountability or church discipline. At every step of, of, on every step of the way, we want to make sure that, that the truth wins out. That the accused brother is able to share his side of the story, is able to explain exactly what happens. And we, of course, all understand why this is so important. For all of us have gone through that experience where someone does something or says something that deeply offends us. We are horrified by the injustice of a comment someone has made at our, at our expense. And we assume that everyone would share in our frustration, in our anger. But then what can happen at times is, as we share that story with, say, another person, we find, shockingly, that they do not share that same level of concern, do they? Oftentimes, as you're passionately explaining how so-and-so has offended you, your partner or your friend will respond with, okay. It can be pretty deflating in the moment. But that moment is very helpful for it immediately shows you, well, maybe you're overreacting to this. And maybe the person clearly didn't mean what you were interpreting or assuming there. Maybe you do need to move on. The same is true when it comes to confronting sin within a church. It is possible that you or I have have misunderstood something that has happened. That we have blown something out of proportion. And in in um, in that event, it is essential to have the help of of loving brothers or sisters in Christ who can come along aside us and say, okay, well, well, I think you might have been mistaken on this. I think it's time maybe to, to pick up and move on and, and perhaps seek the forgiveness of your brother for wrongfully correcting or confronting him. Having said that, however, 
We understand there are those times when sin truly has been committed. And we understand that the brother or sister really must be confronted. And if that is the case, and if in response to the confrontation of the small group, the individual continues to persist and refuse to repent, refuse to to come back on that path of righteousness, Jesus offers us the third step found in verse 17. Jesus there says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now here again is, is this step that feels so incredibly aggressive to many people. For again, we understand the weight of which Jesus instructs us to command us to, to bring a, a personal matter up on stage before an entire congregation of people. That's, that's a weighty command. And yet again, if we're operating with the assumed relationship that Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew 18, if we are living in a proper biblical community, then that aspect, that, that response of bringing a sin before the congregation is by no means surprising at all. It's quite natural. For it's the same thing we would do in any family setting, isn't it? If we have a, an actual flesh and blood sister that is struggling mightily with something, eventually it's going to get to the point in time where we're going to have to call mom and dad. We're going to have to bring the other siblings in to address it. As much as that struggling sister or brother might disdain that response, we understand what's what families do. We help each other out and we do whatever is necessary. Well, the same is true in any church setting. If you are truly my brother in Christ, I'm going to do whatever I can to help you get out of your sin. And that means I'm calling in the authorities that God has placed over us and so be it. And so as a church here at the chapel, we understand that this is essential. And so if you have confronted a brother privately and he does not respond, if you've brought other members to him privately and he still does not respond, at that point in time you say, okay, well, we're going to have to get the pastors, the elders involved. We're going to talk to them and seek their counsel and if they too agree that the sin has risen to the level that must be addressed corporately, then we must do it. Again, we do this not to humiliate any individual. We do this not because we feel self-righteous and we desire this, this, this public uh, statement of justice. We do this because we understand how deceptive and dangerous sin is. Brothers and sisters, we can all fall off the path at some point in time. Every single one of us has our own blind spots. We have committed and will commit sins that we are oblivious to. It is part of being a fallen person. But tragically, we also understand that if left to our own devices, we can remain blind to those sins. And before we know it, we may stray far, much farther down the path than we could have ever possibly imagined. Uh, For a brother or sister for a church to then bring you before a congregation, then we understand they are not acting in a harsh manner. They're doing what any proper shepherd's going to do. They're doing everything that they can do to make sure you get back on path. Because at this point in time, as we'll see, the concern is not just for the reputation of the church. The concern is for the soul of this individual. For a certain point in time, we begin to question whether or not they really are one of us. This is the process that Christ gives. This private confrontation followed by small group confrontation followed by by church-wide confrontation. It is incredibly difficult, yet that is the clear process that Jesus defines. At this point in time, of course, the question that must be asked is, well, to what end? 
And we understand we do this because of our relationship with one another. And we understand that here's the process we are following. But in all honesty, does this work? And this is a good question to ask because there are many amongst us that might be cynical of the process. Do we really see this ever accomplishing anything more than humiliating a person? Honestly, what are we doing when we go through with this process? It's a good question to ask, and yet again, as we look at the words of Jesus, we see that it too has a very clear answer. For as Jesus describes this process, he in essence describes one of two responses, ultimately a third response as well, a result. Throughout this process, we see one possible response of being rejection or outright refusal. We see this from the very beginning, for he says, if your brother sins, go and show him your fault in private. If he listens to you, if you won your brother, but if he does not listen to you, if he does not repent, you go to the next step. And hopefully he listens to the three brothers or sisters in Christ, but if he still does not, okay, well then you move on to the next step. At that point in time, you bring it before the church, and at that point in time, we read in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If our sinning brother or sister in Christ refuses to repent even at the point of church-wide confrontation, the response is clear. If they have rejected the counsel of God's word, the church rejects their profession. And the church says, I'm sorry, but you're not one of us. As Jesus says, he uses this language of, of a Gentile and tax collector that simply speaks of someone outside of the kingdom. It means the church, in essence, offers this, this vote of no confidence to this individual's declaration or profession of faith. The church does not do this again for the sake of humiliating an individual. They do so to protect the flock. They do so because they understand, as Jesus teaches, that, that sin spreads within a church, that it affects others, and so we cannot tolerate that open, rebellious spirit. The church also does this for their own external witness. For we understand that, that if word gets out that we tolerate some openly sinful behavior, well, then people start asking what does that church even believe? How is that church different from anyone else? Now, we have standards that God has given us. We are called to reflect the purity of Christ, reflect the glory of the gospel, and this requires discipline, this requires correction. It requires us to at times make the very difficult decision to kick someone out of membership and to deny them that, that intricate level of care that is offered ultimately to members. This again is an incredibly difficult decision to make. And it is clear that Jesus understands this. For even as he speaks of this final step in verse 18 through 20, he offers us this, this, incredibly, this incredible word of encouragement. For again he says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask it, it shall be done for them by my fathers in heaven. For two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. Now these last verses are, are really abused oftentimes, this idea of, of if any two are gathered, they can pray anything, God will answer them their prayer. That, that isn't what he's talking about, of course. He's not saying gather with two other believers and 
you have God on a short leash and he has to offer you whatever prayer requests you offer up. No, he's saying that in the context of church discipline, if you, if you as a church say we cannot trust this believer's or this, this sheep's profession of faith, if we can no longer abide by having them live alongside us in the church, God says, I'm with you in that decision. If you follow this process, you can know that, that my presence is there. Even in that difficult decision, I am present with you. I support that decision. I will be with you as you move forward and just as you've prayed for wisdom and prayed for ultimate guidance, ultimately you have that promise of God in heaven. This is much needed, especially for those of us who are ever involved in the process of church discipline. For if you've ever been involved in that decision, you know how painful and how difficult it is. For you love this person. You care for this person. And so to know that God is still present with you even in making that hard decision you are offered a word of great comfort. And it is a word that we should take very seriously as a church. Now, hopefully, that is not the response. And we understand that at times, church discipline does work the other way. That is to say, there are those opportunities when the sinning brother or sister is truly one. Whereby the grace of God, repentance comes up where they understand their sin, they understand their offense, they seek forgiveness, and they are in response restored fully amongst the body. This is, is the cause of the great rejoicing of verses 12 through 14. This is the event in which the shepherd finds the lost sheep and the sheep is brought back to the flock. This is ultimately the constant hope in any process of accountability or church discipline. And if and when by the grace of God this happens, we rightly rejoice. We forgive the brother or sister in Christ and we welcome them with open arms back into the flock. Either this will happen or the rejection will take place. God makes clear this is his order. This is the process he has commanded. And we pray by his hand it might always be that latter response. And yet while it will ultimately be one of two of those responses, we must understand that there is also a, a third result that is always at work regardless of the response of the brother or sister. That third result is the fact that the gospel is still proclaimed. This is why it is so important, by the way, to practice this. For we understand that regardless of the response of a sinner, ultimately, God receives the glory and the gospel is proclaimed. And how so? We've talked about that already, haven't we? For we've seen that, that in rejection, in disciplining someone out of the church, sin is rightly being addressed within the body and the purity of the church is, is assured, it is protected. In the same way, in that discipline, the surrounding community is given a clear and visible uh, appreciation of, of how sin must be dealt with and how certain standards must be followed. In a perhaps even more glorious way, when there is restoration, when there is forgiveness, the community around us sees a visible picture of, of what it means to be accepted by the people of God. They're given a picture of what it means to be accepted by God, to be forgiven, to be restored, and be given a life that, that we could never possibly ever deserve. And all these things then, the church of God is preserved, it is encouraged, it is built up, and the word can continue to be proclaimed in an unhindered fashion. But if you remove any of these steps, if you remove church discipline from in a church, if you remove that loving care and concern that is to characterize every relationship between members, then you lose that protection. You lose that proclamation. 
you lose the purpose that Christ has given to his church here on earth. And so as we consider all these things, again, we must ask, brothers and sisters in Christ, is this us? Does this describe our community? What reputation do we have to Cape Girardeau and Jackson? What reputation do we have? I pray that it is a reputation in which the word of God is proclaimed boldly in which the gospel is known. And I, I, I pray and hope equally that it is a reputation of love and compassion. Both must be true in any corporate setting. And so as believers, we must be careful to really examine ourselves and, and ensure that we are rightly loving one another in this moment. In this current coronavirus mayhem we are being given a a tremendous test of how well we are doing as a community how well and effectively we are in, in reaching out to one another for we understand that this is a very dangerous time and not just physically but spiritually for when we are alone when we are isolated we are prone to go in in a number of directions that are displeasing to god we are prone to become overwhelmed with worry we are prone to fall deeper into those sinful temptations that are perhaps easier to hide when we are busy Our struggling marriages struggle all the more so and we can do it behind closed doors. And brothers and sisters, that is a very dangerous position to be in. And so as a community, let us consider that reality, that need. Let us not simply look for ways to to reach out physically to our community, but let's make sure that we're in touch with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's do everything we can to prevent having to get to steps three and four of church discipline. Let's take care of those sinful struggles that we can identify now let us do so not pridefully but again with the love that a shepherd has for a sheep with the love that jesus christ has for his people for my brothers and sisters in christ i know that we find ourselves in a difficult time and perhaps even at this moment you find yourself watching this sermon alone and that can be very difficult but as we consider the words of jesus christ today i pray it's a reminder of the fact that none of us are alone. Even in these times, none of us are completely cut off if we are actually members in the body. Praise God for the fact that he's provided for us his local church that can care and and be concerned for us, that can be in touch with us, that can help lift us up in times of trouble. But as we remember that beautiful thought, let us also consider how real our relationships are with one another. Who have you reached out to in the last week? Who have, have you thought of and, and tried to reach out uh, to, to, to encourage, to, to provide for? Who are you doing that for and who is doing that for you? Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling, please reach out. Do not wait for, for someone else to contact you, but have the humility, the vulnerability to, to admit your struggle and to admit your need for other people. For we are not alone. And when we act out the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, we are given a vivid reminder of just how glorious this community is and how precious it can be in preserving us from here through coming eternity. That being said, let us close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this morning. God, the idea of church discipline is, of course, distasteful to many believers and is struggling, a struggle to consider. But as we consider the words of your son this morning, we are reminded of just how loving of a process it is. And I pray that as a church, we might be stronger as a community. Might we be quick to support one another, to lift each other up, but also might we be quick to to help correct one another in a loving way. 
Might we have the reputation of a community that, that loves our members enough to not only provide for, but also protect and, and help correct when the time comes. God, I pray, Lord, that you cause sin to be dealt with in our body in a way that is glorifying to you. Might we be disciplined enough to, to make those hard choices, to have those hard conversations, but might we also do it in a loving and compassionate way, God. Be with our body today and through this week as we continue to find ourselves in troubling times, God. We thank you so much for the countless individuals who are selflessly serving their neighbor in this time, God. For those in the medical community as well as for those serving as as pharmacists, for those working in the city and working in grocery stores and working those businesses that are so important to us at this time, God. We pray for their protection. But might their service be a reminder to us of the role each and every one of us is to play in the lives of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God. Might we respond properly, God, in a way that's pleasing to you. We love you, God. We praise you and pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.